0: Welcome to Theological Equipping class. We are studying the biblical theme of the day of the Lord today. I'm excited about it. First, let's go ahead and pray to begin our time. Father, you are faithful. You are true. You have made many promises, and you will answer and fulfill every last one of them. I pray, God, as we study this theme, that you would fix our eyes on Christ, on his first coming in the cross, and on his return when we will be gathered together to him. I pray you would just fill us with joy and wonder as we consider what he has done for us and what he will do. Promises that are left unfulfilled that will be fulfilled. Help us have eyes of faith to see that. Help us have clarity of mind just as we as we study your word and consider the things it teaches us. Help us to live in obedience and in light of Christ's return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, good morning again. Uh, this semester in theological equipping class, we are working through biblical themes. We're getting near the end of the semester. I think we've got like two left after this one. Is that right? Something like that? Maybe one or two, three, four? Jared's shaking his head. The end of June is when uh, we'll be done with our themes. I'm obviously on top of everything. But these biblical themes are these uh, threads you can trace across the whole Bible. And what we've tried to do every, every class uh, this uh, semester in tech... Is really two things. First, show how the whole Bible holds together. How, though it's 66 books with a ton of different authors, some of whom we, we're not even sure what their name is, like the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that, but it's part of uh, God's word in scripture. This book that was written over the span of at least 1,500 years by farmers and shepherds and prophets and kings has this unbelievable. Coherent story. That's what we've tried. It's the first thing we've tried to show each each class here in Tech this semester. How, despite all that diversity, it is one coherent story. And part of that coherence is the second thing that we've tried to show every week: is that Christ is the climax of every biblical theme. Every time you open your Bible and you come across uh, something, some some element of one of the themes we've looked at, it is pointing forward or pointing back. To Christ Himself, And that holds true for this theme we're going to consider today. That the incarnate Son of God is the peak of every biblical theme. And we're going to see that with the day of the Lord. So things kick off very early in the Bible with this theme, with a very famous passage, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. The original day of the Lord it says this. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What I want you to notice from the very start here is that the day of the Lord, as it begins here in Genesis chapter 2, is both a beginning and an end. It's literally you know, the beginning of everything, the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of all time here. God spends six days making everything. On the seventh, he rests. But it's also an end. We see that there in verse two. God finished his work. So this is the last of the seven days. It's the the culmination of his creation. Everything has been driving towards this day, day seven. So it's very much like when a, a, a mother gives birth to a new child. It's the End of this long process, but it's the beginning of a bigger, longer process. Uh, that's very much what the day of the Lord is it's an end and a beginning. So, here again is the conclusion of the days of creation. And as we've uh, seen, or if you haven't, I don't have in your notes, but if you're familiar with the days of creation, everything has its day, right? Day and night have a day. Sun and moon have a day. Animals and humans have a day. Everything gets its day, but what's important to realize is everything has so far has had to share a day, right? Humans and animals share a day. The sun and the moon share a day. Everything shares. The waters above, the waters below share a day, but we get to the last day and God doesn't share. It's his day in a unique way. It is especially his in a way that Not every day is. It is set apart. It's holy. It's different. It's God's day. It is the day of the Lord. And the rest of the Old Testament remembers that. The rest of the Old Testament looks back to that special fact that this was God's unique day and it honors him in what is called the Sabbath. So, Exodus 20, this is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. That should sound familiar. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter your male servant, your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there's this explicit connection between God's creation and his resting on the seventh day, and the Jewish practice of the Sabbath. It's because it's God's day. It's holy. It's set apart for him in a, in a unique way, again, that not every day is. So is every day God's day? Well, yeah, sure. Of course it is. God is sovereign over every day. Every day belongs to him. This day is, though, in a unique way, his. I remember growing up on the question my brothers and I always asked on Mother's Day and Father's Day, is why isn't there a kids day? This isn't fair. Mom gets a day, dad gets a day, and my dad, always snarky man, said every day's kids day. Uh, any any kids did your parents say that to you? No. Okay, yeah, we had some snarky parents uh, out here too. Yeah, every day's kids day. And now being a dad, I totally agree with that. They do not need more pampering. But the point of Mother's Day and Father's Day is not simply that that's the only time to honor a mother or a father. That's the, that's the only day they matter. It's that it's a special day to honor and celebrate them. And that's very much what the Sabbath was. Sure, every day is God's day. Every day you should live in obedience and, honoring, uh, and honor God with how you live your life. But the Sabbath for the Jews was a special day. It was God's day in a unique way. It was a regular reminder of who he is and what he's done. And that's what we see from the original day of the Lord. But then that this theme uh, kind of goes silent for a long time. It's uh, very different than most of the themes we've looked at. Uh, we could probably say that the fall, Genesis three, we could think of it as kind of the anti-day of the Lord because they're explicitly saying not we're, we're not going to serve God today. We're going to disobey His commands. We're actually going to listen to the serpent. This, is, uh, you know, this isn't about resting in him. This isn't about looking to him. This is about us, and, our, and sin thrives. So it's kind of the anti-day of the Lord. But really, the, the day of the Lord doesn't get much treatment for the vast majority of the historical books in the Old Testament. We, it's, they talk about the Sabbath, but there's really no development. There's no progression in this storyline through the, 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 through the theme as it moves across the Bible. The historical books are pretty silent. But then you get to the Old Testament prophets and there's a turn. And the the first turn is obviously that they just keep, they talk about it like crazy. It just, the theme explodes. It's probably one of the major contributions of the Old Testament prophets is this idea of the day of the Lord. And one of the major changes, one of the major developments of the theme is it stops being about something you look back to, Sabbath, the day of the Lord, seventh day of creation, And it starts being something they look forward to. The prophets anticipate this coming day of the Lord. But before we dive into their contribution, I just want to take a second to reflect on why the prophets spoke so much about the day of the Lord. Why why did this theme, it was silent for most of Israel's history from creation. I mean, obviously the Sabbath, but that's still looking backwards to when the prophets show up and start talking about it. And I, have, I can think of two reasons. First, the prophets preached during a time when Israel was in serious sin. So their kings are worshiping foreign gods. They're making deals with enemy nations. Their people had forgotten God and his word. To take just one example, the prophets talk about regularly They had dishonored God's Sabbath, so they weren't treating the Sabbath as the Lord's day. And so, because of their sin, they need to hear the terrifying warnings of judgment that come with the day of the Lord. When the prophets talk about the day of the Lord, as we'll see, they talk a lot about judgment, about the terrors of that coming day. But the second reason the prophets talked a lot about the day of the Lord Is Israel was not only in sin, Israel was also in crisis when the prophets were preaching. So the the writing prophets, that's like Elijah and Elisha are what you would call narrative prophets. They didn't write any books that we have. The writing prophets like Amos, Hosea, Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah... don't don't show up until halfway through 2 Kings. That's when they basically start their ministry. Amos is the first of them, and he's basically halfway through 2 Kings. And if you read uh, 1 and 2 Kings, you realize basically the storyline is just things get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So the later in that storyline you are, the worse things get. And so Amos shows up, again, as the first prophet, uh, halfway through 2 Kings and all the other prophets are from there to Israel uh, and after, Israel being in exile. So it's a pretty, pretty rough period in Israel's history. They're divided between Israel and Judah. Their power is slipping to superpowers like Assyria. There's wars that are being waged everywhere. Eventually, again, the exile, they get deported into a foreign land. So things are really, really bad for Israel. And the day of the Lord holds this promise to them of actually something wonderful to look forward to. Something surprising. That I mean, they're dealing with these big questions. Have God's promises failed? We're in exile. We're getting destroyed by Assyria. Our, our kingdoms are split. There's Israel and there's Judah. Our kings are terrible. They're sacrificing their own children on the altar. Is anything going to ever get better Will God's promises come true? And the day of the Lord is the day the prophets say is coming. There is hope on the horizon. God has not forgot his promises. So that's, I think those are two reasons why the prophets focus on this so much. I think that, that sets us up for what we'll see the prophets talking about. Uh, very briefly before we look at that, uh, I just want to get clear on some terminology because the prophets will use a lot of different terms to talk about the same thing. And so this is, this is not like just one prophet uses one of these terms. It's like one prophet uses all of these terms clearly talking about the same thing. So these are all the different ways the, the prophets talk about the day of the Lord. Obviously, the first one I listed for you is the way I'll refer to it, the day of the Lord. They talk about the day belonging to the Lord. They talk about the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will use this expression, in those days or on that day, and then they'll say something in the future tense. There will be, there shall be, it's coming. They'll say a day is coming, days are coming. Or uh, the sixth one I have there, the latter days. And that one in particular, although all of them do this, point us forward... The day of the Lord is a future reality for the prophets. It is something dealing with, in theological terms, eschatology. So the the Greek word eschatos means last. So eschatology is the study of the last days. That's what the prophets are talking about when they talk about the day of the Lord. They talk about this coming last days. So the expectation is what I have there, a little chart for you. The expectation is that the day of the Lord is this clean break between time, the current age, and eternity, the age to come. There's the then, heaven, eternity, whatever you want to call it. And there's the now, the time when the prophets were preaching and living And the day of the Lord is the, the dividing line between those two. So... Just like we saw in Genesis, the prophets see the day of the Lord as both a beginning and an ending. It's the beginning of eternity and the end of time. It's this clean break between the present age and the age to come. And that will become very, very important when we get to the New Testament. Because the New Testament's going to handle that in a surprising way. So... What is the day of the Lord in the prophets? As I said, the prophets talk about this a ton. If you just look at the frequency numbers I have in the terminology list there, like obviously we're not going to read like 200 or however many uh, references there are. So I'm going to try to summarize major things the prophets talk about with the day of the Lord. And the first is the prophets looked forward and they saw the day of the Lord was near. Zephaniah chapter one: "The great day of the Lord is near." Near and hastening fast, Joel two, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Both of those right. There's this sense of urgency, like there's this sense of like it's it's coming. You better be ready. They never give a sense of quite how near, other than it's hastening fast. Like every day is closer. It's, it's coming, but there's this urgency. And that urgency is accentuated by the next element here, that the day of the Lord is a terrifying day. The prophets speak about the day of the Lord in terms that should make us quake. So they talk about it as a day of war. I won't read these passages, I have the references there for you. But they talk about the day of the Lord being a day where there's this battle of Epic proportions. It talks about uh, the armies covering the hillside with darkness. Uh, if you've seen The Return of the King, the greatest movie ever made, uh, this is the image you kind of get from like Minas Tirith when they're looking out over Pelinar Fields and they see these just like army of orcs. You can't see the ground. There's so many bad guys. That's the image that the day of the Lord gives us. It's a day of, of massive warfare, it's also a day of judgment. This passage here, Amos 5, is what leads into that famous passage, let justice roll down like waters. But it starts with that, or it gets, gets to that by starting with this intense warning. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? You see what Amos is saying there? It's, it's very, very intense. He's, he's saying to his audience, he's like, You guys think the day of the Lord is going to be a good day for you, and you're wrong. It will not be a good day for you because you're sinners and there is unavoidable judgment coming. You can't escape it. These are images are terrifying. Like running from a lion and meeting a bear. That's a bad day. Right? That's that's pretty unfortunate, right? Hiding in a house, being bit by a snake. It, there's this, this sense of inescapable judgment. You can run anywhere you want, judgment will get you. And so the third reason the day of the Lord is terrifying is because it's a day of death. The very last book in the entire book of Isaiah, which is huge, 66 chapters, the very last verse, and Isaiah develops this theme quite a lot. We'll look at some of his uh, other things he says about the day of the Lord, but the very last verse is terrifying. It says, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. It's just an image of death everywhere. The day of the Lord is a day where there's just corpses in the streets. So make no mistake, the prophets looked to the day of the Lord as something that was terrifying. It's not something to talk about lightly. It's not something to ignore something that demands serious attention. But there's also good news because that's not the whole story. The prophets also Look forward to the day of the Lord and talk about how it will be a wonderful day. Again, I've, I've tried to summarize that for us under a couple headings. It will be a day of restoration and abundance. Verse 11 here in Amos 9 talks about the booth of David being repaired, which is this image of uh, God's Messiah being restored, the King of Israel coming back and reigning. Uh, and it's not just a restoration. There's an image of bounty here. I love, look at verse 13. I love this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it, says the Lord, your God. If you know anything about plowing and reaping, you know, those are opposite seasons, right? You plow and you reap much later and then you plow much later and uh, Amos is saying those seasons are going to overtake each other. The, the, the reaper is going to be out reaping the harvest for so long because there's so much abundance that it's the plow guy is going to be like, hey, I need to get in there to put the seed down. And the reaper's like, I'm still, I'm still getting stuff in. It's, just, it's like this image of like, I think of like Scrooge McDuck swimming in money, right? Uh, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's just like unbelievable abundance. The plowman shall overtake the reaper. It will also be a day of peace. Hosea promises that God will abolish the bow, abolish the sword, abolish war, and unite his people to himself forever. day of the Lord will be a day of fulfillment. So throughout the Old Testament, you get a lot of promises from God. One of the biggest ones, as I've alluded to, is this promise that a son of David will reign on the throne of God's people. But for most of Israel's history, that does not look good. Yeah, The line of David is preserved, but, I mean, barely. And eventually the kings get taken into exile. But God says there will be a day when he will fulfill that promise. He has not forgotten it. He will restore the kingship of David. In fact, the the day of the Lord basically becomes this vessel in which God puts all of his promises. So every, every hope, every expectation Israel ever had, pretty much, is, not all of them, but most of them are linked with the day of the Lord. So it's like, a, if you ever watched a baseball game, and it's like 0-0 at the end of the eighth inning, and you're like, man, why did we come? Like, the hot dogs are good, this is great, but man, this is a boring game You're just kind of waiting for something to happen. And then the ninth inning, both teams just light it up, right? The bats come alive and the game finishes like 10 to 13. You're like, what happened in the ninth inning? That's basically the image of the day of the Lord. It's like all of God's promises, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. Boom, everything. That's the image that the prophets give us, that the day of the Lord will be this day of just epic fulfillment of every promise God has made. And he makes new promises for example, he says the day of the Lord will be a day when death is destroyed. In fact, he, doesn't, he won't just destroy it. Isaiah chapter 25, I love this, says he will swallow it up. He will swallow up death forever. And I think that is a, a foreshadowing, right? Not only will death be gone but the way in which it will be defeated is God himself will swallow it up. And then finally, Jeremiah 31, the day of the Lord is associated with this promise of a new covenant. I'm going to read this whole passage. It's very, very significant. Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming. Again, that's, that's that image. That's that language that saying, hey, I'm talking about the day of the Lord. The days that are coming, declares the Lord. and I will be their God, they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There's so much to unpack in there. Obviously this class is not about the differences between the Old and New Covenant. But one of the differences we see there this promise of the new covenant associated with the day of the Lord is the new covenant is, has a permanence and an effectiveness that the old covenant lacked. So the old covenant, God's people broke it again and again. It was ineffective. It wasn't defective. There wasn't any problem with the law itself, but it was ineffective because the people were sinful. Their hearts were broken. And so the new covenant, God says, I'm going to put my law in your heart. I'm going to make you, my people, you will be faithful. You will know me. I will forgive your iniquity. I will remember your sin no more. So, that's this promise of this day of the Lord and this new amazing covenant. Think about how good, what good news that would be if you're an Israelite who's living under the old covenant and you're just so, even if you're trying as hard as you can, you're so frustrated with your faithlessness. And God says, Don't worry, I will make you faithful. I will write my law in your heart. And then with all that in front of us, right, we've we've looked at all these kind of promises of the day of the Lord, and it seems that there are some contradictions. Obviously, there's the big picture I, I drew where there's the, the day of the Lord will be terrifying and the day of the Lord will be wonderful. How does that coexist? But actually, even in the specifics, there seem to be contradictions. Like, down to the the granular level of each promise about the day of the Lord. So how can the day of the Lord be a day of both peace and war? How can it be a day of both destruction of death and death? How can it be a day of both judgment and forgiveness? Now, one, one option, obviously, would be to say, well, the prophets, you know, the Bible contradicts itself. The prophets didn't compare notes. Isaiah said one thing, he's like, I think the day of the Lord's gonna be great. And Jeremiah's like, uh-uh-uh. And they just they just disagreed. They should have compared notes. We would have a Bible that agreed with itself. But actually, that that doesn't resolve a further problem. That there are many times a prophet will make a promise that sounds great, and in the same breath, without like changing anything, talk about a promise that sounds horrible. How the day of the Lord will be. This amazing thing and this horrible thing in like one chapter. We look at that. We see that if you look at Isaiah chapter 2. So look at verses 2 through 4. This is a very famous passage. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Okay, I know what we're talking about. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come. Say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go, shall, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. You won't need a sword anymore. It's just a plow. That's all you need. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. They won't even learn war anymore. Doesn't that sound great? Sounds amazing. But something happens a few verses later, six verses later, Isaiah chapter 10. This is the description that we get of the day of the Lord. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord. Wait a second. I thought, I thought God was going to judge between nations. Many people are going to come to Jerusalem and worship him. And now we're talking about The terror of the Lord and hiding from it. Hide from the splendor of his majesty. The hardy looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day for the Lord of hosts. Remember that image, Lord of hosts saying, God with all the armies. It's a terrifying image. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. And the hardiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And what are the people doing? I thought they were coming to Jerusalem to worship him. No, the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from before the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Is Isaiah a schizophrenic so that... Verses two through four in chapter two, he's like, "Day of the Lord's going to be awesome," and then verses ten through nineteen, he's like, "No, no, 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 it's going to be horrible." Did he forget what he said? That's just one example. I, I listed others there for you. Hosea two, Joel two, it's the exact same thing. They go from talking about how amazing it's going to be to how horrible it's going to be in a single breath. So the prophets, here's what they do: they leave us with a tension. Will the day of the Lord be a day of judgment or a day of joy? Is it a good day or is it a bad day? There's this tension that we leave the prophets with and we turn to the New Testament and the answer is both. It will be a day of both judgment and joy. But the way in which it works is there's multiple twists with the day of the Lord when you get to the New Testament. and The first is I have this chart to illustrate it for you. The first regards to the timing of the day of the Lord. Now I want to be clear. Everything the prophets said is true. It's just not quite what they expected. Because when we get to the New Testament, we find the day of the Lord treated in two parts. Both in a past tense and a future tense. So the New Testament writers, when they, they refer back to the day of the Lord as the day of Christ on the cross. Jesus' life and death. And they look forward to the day of the Lord as the return of Jesus, the consummation. And those two parts actually bookend what the Bible calls the last days. It is this end times period between Jesus' first and second coming. So remember, the Jewish assumption was that time and eternity have a clean break. Time, eternity, and that's it. There's just the day of the Lord as the line between them. But when we get to the New Testament we find that they overlap. Hence the purple, you know. Blue and red make purple. What a seminary education. That's that's what it's good for right there. Amazing, beautiful. The day of the Lord comes in two parts here. And of course, Jesus is the climax of the theme as he is with all the others. So his first and second coming set those bookends. Uh, The the classic analogy for this, some of you may have heard it before, of, of, okay, what's going on with what the prophets thought was coming and what we get in the New Testament. Uh, the classic analogy is the, that the prophets looked forward to the day of the Lord and they, they saw it as a kind of a range of mountains. And when you see mountains from a distance, they all look like, they look flat, right? They all look like they're right on top of each other, like plains, mountains. Okay, there's just a clean line between the two of them. But when you get up close, you see here's this mountain and like 30 miles behind it is this mountain. And then there's this one over here. And you realize there's some, there's some depth to them. From far away, they look like, one, like it's all happening at one point. But when you get close, you see that there is some depth. That's how the prophets looked at the day of the Lord. So some of their promises are focused on Jesus' first coming. Some of them are focused on his second coming. But many of them are actually both. Where you see the fulfillment of God's promises inaugurated at the cross and consummated at Jesus' return. The fancy term for this is inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. Remember, eschatology has to do with last days, the end times. So inaugurated eschatology means the end times are now, even as we await them coming in Full. We see this very clearly in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 5. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Notice what John said. He did not say He will give us eternal life, as if eternity is something that's coming. Saying he has given it, he gave us eternal life. We have it now. Uh, in the words of Paul, we uh, are we, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now. You're not waiting for that to happen. You, it is a reality of yours, Christian. Right now, we see this in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five. I won't read it them. Read them all. I just want you to see the structure. The first and the last beatitude describe a present reality. It's a present tense verb. Theirs is the kingdom. And all the middle beatitudes describe a future reality. They shall, they shall, they shall. That's the nature of the age we are in. That's what Jesus is explaining in part. It's part of what he's trying to show us through the beatitudes is we live in the already not yet. We live in the end times that have not yet come in full. Christ's kingdom is here, although it's not quite fully here. Uh, As I I should also just now, just a quick caveat, a quick uh, disclosure. I don't think this changes much in terms of this teaching. Uh, I'm trying to major on the majors here, but it's just helpful to show you my cards on something you don't have to agree with me on. Uh, But I'm an amillennialist, which means, uh, well, it means a lot of things, uh, but mostly refers to my interpretation of Revelation chapter 20. That we are now currently, right now, in the millennial period, which is not a literal, but a figurative thousand years. A time when Satan is spiritually bound, the nations are being brought in. Uh, I say that, inaugurated eschatology is not unique to amillennialism. You don't have to be an amillennialist to believe that. I think it's very biblical. We will see that in a lot of passages. Uh, I just say that to kind of disclose There will be some passages I use to defend what I'm saying that you don't have to agree with that passage, although I do think the point I'm making uh, is is fairly universal. So that's just a a full disclosure. Again, I'm trying to major on the majors, so don't worry too much about it. But inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology, the end times began with Jesus' first coming, especially the cross and the resurrection. And the New Testament writers reflect on his life and death and resurrection as the arrival of the day of the Lord. We see that in Jesus' preaching, Mark chapter 1. He comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. They knew what that meant. They knew the prophets. They know he's saying the time is fulfilled. All the promises God made, they're coming true. This is the day of the Lord. We see that in the Last Supper, Luke 22. He declares the new covenant is here. It's the first time since Jeremiah 31 that the new covenant is is talked about. And he's saying it's here. This cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That covenant he talked about, the permanent effective covenant is here. I gave you a bunch of bullet points there. I won't walk through all of them. But the New Testament again and again and again, explicitly quotes several of these Day of the Lord passages from the prophets and says, yeah, Jesus did that. That's that's. It's talking about when he rose from the dead, guys. It's talking about when he died on the cross. It's talking about what he's doing now through the church. That's how the New Testament authors, that's how the apostles understood much of the Day of the Lord passages. They point back and use the past tense and say, Jesus did that. And we can probably just see that just from your own biblical knowledge from the ways we talked about, or the ways we saw the prophets talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is about war. The Bible describes Jesus' work on the cross as an act of cosmic warfare. He triumphed over the powers of darkness. If you're a millennial like me, he bound Satan so that the bondage that the nations lived under could be lifted. The day of the Lord is about judgment for sin, and our judgment fell on Christ. The day of the Lord is about death, and our death fell on Christ. But the day of the Lord is also about the defeat of death, and Jesus rose. All these things that we've seen again and again, they show up throughout the New Testament. Sometimes explicitly where the writer's like, hey, remember Isaiah, what he said? Right here. And sometimes it's just clearly thematic. You just see it. It jumps off the page, great summary of this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. They find their yes in Him. So looking back to the cross, there's a sense in which the day of the Lord has already happened. But there is another sense that the New Testament writers talk about the day of the Lord, and that is a future Tense. They look forward to it as something that is still coming, and they link it with Jesus' return. Uh, now, we could say a lot about this future day of the Lord. Again, for the purposes of summary, I'm going to uh, just talk about it in three specific ways. I actually I stole these three points from a former pastor of mine. He used to say, uh, the day of the Lord is certain, it's sudden, and it separates a helpful way to remember. The day of the Lord is certain, it's sudden, and it separates. Let's talk about each of those briefly. It is certain. That is probably the most obvious one from the simple fact that every time the Bible talks about it, it just talks about it like it's going to happen. It doesn't say, hey, if Jesus returns, I mean, who knows? We'll see. It says when Jesus returns, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. It's it's always a, yes, that's coming. You better be ready for it. In, In the New Testament, we'll talk about this sense of urgency, like the Old Testament prophets, that the day of the Lord is near. It's coming. It's certain. You can bank on it. It is a sure reality. It's not only certain, it will also be Sudden. 2 Peter chapter 3, I, I gave you a bunch of references here. You could look at any of them. They all use this same image. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's this image of something sudden, something unexpected, something you are not ready for. You need to be ready for, it. you need to stay awake so that you are ready for. It, it will be sudden. And thirdly, the day of the Lord separates. I pointed out uh, from the prophets that there is almost this contradiction, right, about the day of the Lord. That, that Sometimes it seems like a great thing. Sometimes it sounds really, really bad. And there are two things in the New Testament that reconcile that tension, that, that seeming contradiction we talked about. And the first, as I've alluded to, is the cross. The cross is where both perfect judgment and perfect mercy meet, where war and peace become One, where Jesus undergoes the terrors of hell to give us the wonders of heaven. That resolves a lot of the tension. But the other thing that resolves the tension, simply put, is that the day of the Lord will be wonderful for some, and it will be terrifying for others. Matthew 25 could not be more clear. When the Son of Man comes in his glory again we see that certainty when he comes and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world then he will say to those on his left Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And look at this. Look, look at this separation. These, the goats, unbelievers, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The separation is, is very, very clear. And I, I want you to see specifically there, specifically in that, especially in that last verse, that the eternality of hell... Mirrors the eternality of heaven. It is, it is not the case. There are a lot of ideas out there that maybe you could repent after you die and still go to heaven. Or, or maybe that a hell is just, you just cease to exist. That's a, an idea called annihilationism. It's just the end, you just end. It's over. That's not the image that we get here. The Bible is very clear. There is a permanent separation. The the final judgment cannot be undone and both sides last forever. One side is wonderful. Streets of gold, the face of Jesus. One side is terrifying. Gnashing of teeth, eternal conscious torment. So the important question we need to ask is, is what makes the difference? What makes the difference between those wonders and those horrors. And I want to illustrate the answer by comparing a depiction of the terrors of the day of the Lord with the terrors of the cross. Revelation 16, this is talking about the end times when Jesus returns and wrath is poured out on the earth. It says, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great. That's not a good remembering. He remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Make no mistake, the final judgment will be a cataclysmic Disaster. But for some, that disaster has already come. It has already fallen on Christ. The very same descriptions of this final day of the Lord, the final day of judgment, we can find associated with the cross of Christ. John 19.30, Jesus says, it is finished. Remember Revelation 16 said, it is done. Revelation 16 said, there's this great earthquake. When Jesus died, the earth shook and the rocks were split. Revelation 16.19, there's this cup that the evil must drain. In Luke 22, Jesus drank that very cup for us. What did Jesus undergo On the cross, he underwent all the horrors of the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath for you, Christian. That's the cup he drank. And that is why you can look forward to that day, because all the bad stuff, all the terrors associated with that day fell on Christ. As Isaiah 25 promised, he swallowed death. And so for you, Christian, that day will be an end and a beginning. It will be the end of all your pains and your sorrows, the end of every tear, every grief, and the beginning of eternal joy. We see that in Revelation 21, beautiful promise, so no mourning, no crying, no pain. I love this. Those will just be called the former things. Those won't, those won't be anything like the reality you know. You just say, "Oh that's back then. And that stuff's gone. Let's talk about some applications. What do we do with this day of the Lord, both past tense and future tense? Well, now the Lord's day is in the present tense. We are living in the end times. That's what the Bible says. So we are looking forward and we are looking back. So regarding the future day of the Lord, be patient. Be patient. 2 Peter chapter three: Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, the day of the Lord, or that, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, almost like a millennium. Sorry, I could't have had to do that. The day, the, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. God will fulfill His promises. We can bank on it. We can be patient because we look back to the cross and we see he has already started to fulfill them. He has inaugurated their fulfillment. He will complete it. Second application, stay faithful. Stay faithful. If indeed we are in the last days, we can expect difficulty. 2 Timothy reflects on this. Paul tells Timothy, this is 2,000 years ago, real quick. When I say the last days, I'm not saying, guys, I, you know, I was reading the news and things look really, really bad. We'll talk about this in the next point. Don't listen, don't listen to the crazies. I'm not saying, I was reading the news and guys, I'm pretty sure the day of the Lord is here. No, no, no. I'm saying the day of the Lord is from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. I said that earlier. just want to make that real clear. So Paul tells Timothy what the day, the last days will be like. And it's pretty rough. Being a part of the kingdom to come when it has not yet come in full is hard. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. Paul says, avoid such people. If Timothy needed to avoid them, because he was in the last days, surely we all the more 2,000 years later need to avoid them. We need to stay faithful to avoid those who will draw you away, draw you towards the world and away from the kingdom to come. Third, uh, please, please, please don't listen to the crazies. I don't say that to be, uh, yeah, it's just a problem. With all the access to YouTube and podcasts and even Christian bookstores, there is so much junk out there about the day of the Lord, about the final judgment. And I just want to exhort you, don't listen to it. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is a reality that Paul talks about in the church in Thessalonica. He says to them, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So there's people in Thessalonica saying either Jesus already came, we missed it, bummer. Or it's here, it's like maybe today or maybe tomorrow, the day of the Lord's come. And it has come in a sense, that's true, but the final day of the Lord has not come. And Paul's like, don't listen to anyone. Paul's like, I'm an apostle. And if you get a letter that says it's from me, don't listen to it because I would never say that. Don't believe the crazies. There's junk out there about these ideas that here's the day of the Lord. We know it's come. Here's all the signs and things like that. Just don't listen to it. Fourth, uh, church, I hope you long with your whole heart for the day of the Lord. I hope you have a part of your prayer life where you pray the words that John says in Revelation 22. This is the second to last verse in the whole Bible says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. It's a promise, church. And John just hears that and he says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I hope that is a regular part of your prayer life. Just ask the Lord to come. Lord, don't tarry. Don't, don't wait. Please, please come. And the reason, church, I want you to, to pray that prayer is it will stir in you a longing for his return. And that longing will be fulfilled. It's frustrating to be filled with a longing that won't be fulfilled. And this is a promise that you can bank on. And it will be answered. He will fulfill that promise. So stir in your heart a longing and beg God to come and make all things new. But one more way we can grow in that longing, which is our fifth application... Prioritize the Lord's day, meaning go to church. In the beginning, literally the beginning, God rested at the end of the week, the Sabbath, Saturday. And that was the day that it was set aside. It was his, it was devoted to him. His people were to worship him. But since the resurrection, there has been a new day that God's people have gathered and honored him on. And the Bible calls the Lord's Day Sunday. The, it's called Sunday, the Lord's Day, because it's the day Jesus rose. There is a new beginning, a new resurrection, new, a new creation has begun with the resurrection. God's people remember Him as they gather and worship Him on His Day, Sunday, the Lord's Day. Hebrews ten makes this connection between the the return of Jesus and our gathering on Sunday as a church very, very explicit. It makes this connection about Jesus coming back and, and being in church. It says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day, drawing Near. Why in the world does the author of Hebrews connect Sunday meeting, church, with the return of Jesus? Very quickly, I can think of three reasons. First, our gathering, church, functions as a visible depiction of the return of Christ. The coming day of the Lord. We will be gathered to him. The whole church will rise and be gathered to our Lord. And now on the Lord's Day, Sunday, we gather ourselves together in anticipation of that final gathering. It's, it's a glimpse of what's to come. The communion of the saints. Second reason there's this connection why, why we gather to, re, to look forward to the day of the Lord. The church gathering reminds us we're not waiting for Jesus alone. We're not waiting for him alone, church. We're in the world and we might feel isolated. Maybe at your job, you're the only Christian and you feel alone and and isolated. You don't have brothers and sisters around. You're, You're frustrated living in the not yet of God's kingdom, even though you're in the already of God's kingdom. But when we gather as a church, brothers and sisters, when we gather and when I hear us sing songs of praise to our God and I hear the word preached, I am reminded This world is not all there is. There is a world to come, and I'm not alone as I wait for it. And the third reason we gather is because we need each other to live out our exile well. We are in exile awaiting the final full coming of his kingdom, and we need each other To live well in that time, we need instruction on how to be patient, how to be faithful. We need someone to rebuke us when we're straying from the path, looking to this world and not to Christ's kingdom. We need encouragement when we're weighed down. As as Hebrews says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And it's drawing near, so encourage one another, church. So, very simply, Parkway Church, show up, be here. Tech is important. Member meeting is important. Uh, The church picnic, all these other things we do are important. There is nothing we do that is anywhere near as important as our gathering to worship the Lord at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. That is our gathering, church. That is what we must prioritize. Your name can be on the member roll, but it means nothing if you never gather with the church. But if you do gather, church, when we gather, we fix our eyes on the day of the Lord that has come on Christ's cross, we fix our eyes forward on the day of the Lord that is to come until He returns. Let's pray, and we have a few minutes for Q and A. Father, we thank you. We thank you. Your promises are true and sure, and we we need not fear, although we may be weighed down and weary in this world. Christ has already paid the ultimate price to bring us home. And so we need not fear. He will complete the good work he has begun in us. Even as we struggle with sin now and we see this incremental growth as we grow in sanctification yet we're still frustrated, God. One day the trumpet will sound and Christ will crack the sky and we will be perfectly sanctified, perfectly righteous. And we will enter into glory. And we pray that day would come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.